Amen. Thank you, Ryan. Love that. Well, good morning. It's good to see your bright faces. Let's go ahead and get to work. If you have a Bible, you can work your way to Ephesians chapter 5. We're in week 2 of a series we started last week on margin. Uh, We'll unpack that a little bit here. But uh, last week I started by telling a story about driving on the Autobahn in Germany. And uh, first of all, you get to go as fast as you want at places. And so that's exhilarating. That's exciting. But it really narrows your focus just to stay alive. Uh, But then when the uh, construction zone comes, they shuffle you into these very, very tight lanes still at a high speed. Uh, it, it gets very nerve-wracking and uh, you feel like, man, I'm just trying to stay alive. And so anxiety goes up, stress goes up, you're turning off the radio, you're snapping at your kids, or I was at least, uh, just to be quiet. Uh, and this was kind of a picture, I said, of, of how we live our lives when we live our lives with no margin, whether it's relationally, financially, time, otherwise. Uh, this is kind of a picture. And we said that life is better with margin. And, and margin is the, the space between our current limits, uh, our pay and our current limits. And so that's how we began to introduce it last week. Now, a couple weeks ago, uh, I had another driving incident where uh, it was that night, it was a Sunday night, it was raining, maybe you remember it. I went to uh, go pick up my daughter, Abby, and as we were coming home, uh, we were coming down and, and turning into this, into a part of our neighborhood. And um, in, in the road's wet, and in the middle of the road was the fattest raccoon I've ever seen in my life. Um, and it just looked up with those bright eyes into the headlights. And I was like, whoa. Uh, but because I had margin in two areas, one, I wasn't going so fast. And because the road in that particular spot was super, super wide, I, I was able to uh, swerve and uh, avoid the raccoon. But even in that, at the last moment, the raccoon had some sort of death wish or something. It, it, it dived for its head to go into front of my tire, uh, but I was able to go around. And, and so my teenage daughter, Abby, she said, I I think, I guess this is the way teenagers talk. I don't know. She's like, hello? Why did that guy try to kill himself? That's like legit on him if he does it at that point. And I was like, I know, right? And uh, so so we we were able to get past the, the raccoon without incident, and we were able to laugh about it. And the reason I tell that story is because that's kind of a picture of like when, when the stuff happens in your life and stuff does happen in your relationships and otherwise, and there's a raccoon in the road, if you have margin in your speed of life and in the, the, the gaps there, you, you can get around it and you can laugh about it, right? And this is why we said life is better with margin. Now, last week we said that the foundation of this is actually baked into creation. So God created you and me as image bearers. We, we are to reflect his glory to the nations, to the world. Uh, and we have innate value and worth and all like just so much more than you can even imagine your value on uh, this, this planet. And, but at the same time, in Genesis chapter 2, 7, we saw that we are made from the dust. From the dust we come, came to the dust we'll go. So there's this tension here. We have the glory of God and we are dust. We are limited. We reflect his glory, but we don't have his attributes. We don't have the omnis. We are limited. We don't know all things. We can't be in all places. We can't uh, have all power. We are limited. And in that limit that God has baked into creation, it's good because when we, when we come up against our limits, it's meant to have us turn our face in faith to God and say, I'm not enough, but you're enough, God. 
And, and so to live out of that, that kind of way. And we said, if this is true, if God has made the, the universe like this, we should see it in multiple places. And we saw it in Genesis 2, 3, when God created the universe on day 7. Uh, he rested, not because he needed any rest. He is God. He never got taxed or, or exhausted, but he, he just built into creation a, a rhythm of rest. And we see this throughout the Bible. I'll just mention a few. So the Sabbath. So in, in the book of Exodus, when God draws his people out of slavery, 400 years in slavery, never a day off, always working, and he says, you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your God, this is what it's like to be in relationship with me, you're going to take a day off, you're going to stop. Now, now that sounds really cool. Like we have a God that says, hey, take a day off. That's amazing. But, but back then, and, and this is true of all areas of margin, when God is inviting us to margin, it's going to take a measure of faith. This was risky. There's no refrigeration. What do you mean? But God, if we don't do all the work, there's always more work to be done. And that's true of you and me. There's always more work to be done. But if we don't just keep going, we're, we're not going to have enough. We're, we're not going to make it. And he says, trust me. Trust me. So you can even expand that to what's called the Shammit. So we have a, a, a weekly Sabbath, but the, earth, the, the land was to have a Sabbath for a whole year every seven years. He said, my people, you're going you're gonna to leave it fallow. Like, but if we do that, God, we're, are, are we going to have food to eat? We, we could die. And he says, trust me. I want you to build this margin into your life. I want you to trust me. We, we, we continue to see this in the, the gleaning laws, for example. Do you know what the gleaning laws are? I'll, I'll read one for you in uh, Deuteronomy 24. It says this, when you are harvesting your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. What, what, what's happening is if you're a farmer and you go through its harvest time and you get all the stuff, he says, be a little sloppy. Don't be, so, uh, don't, don't be so technical that you get every little thing. You're like, well, isn't that good stewardship? Shouldn't I squeeze everything out of my job as possible as, as your blessing to me? And, and he says, no, I want you to leave some margin. And in leaving margin in your work, he says, there's a couple blessings that come out of this. And the gleaning laws, he says, first of all, leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. So it was a way for God to provide for the poor and the oppressed in the land because farmers would leave enough so the poor and the oppressed could come in and, and there would be food for them. He provided for them. But that's not it. That's the first blessing. The other one says, so that the Lord, your God, may bless you in all the works of your hands. Saying, listen, if you, if you trust me in this, if you put some margin into your work, then I'm going to bless you. And now that's going to take a measure of faith because we, we, we believe we, we've got more to do. We can do more. We can hustle more. We can squeeze more out of it. But he's saying, I want you to be living a life of margin. Well, we could continue to see this. You could see this in the, the tithing laws. You could see how God says, I want you to learn to live on less than you actually make. Uh, we could see this preeminently in the life uh, of Jesus. J Jesus had one teaching on the Sabbath. He said, uh, the Sabbath, uh, the man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And, and in that, he was saying, look, this, this is for your good. This is for your joy. And um, he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. So Hebrews chapter 4 says, Jesus is our Sabbath. Do you have to take a day off? No. Jesus fulfilled all that. Do you get to take a day off? Yes. This is what, what, what the margin looks like. So today we're going to look at this idea of time. 
And ironically, one of the things you're going to feel is, I don't have time for that. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to suggest a few things. You'll be like, I, I, don't, I don't have time for that. I, my life is too busy, right? And, and that's kind of how we think of our lives. I, I read this story of this woman. Uh, she was coming from Africa, trying to learn language and culture. And when you do, you try to pick up on what they're saying, what they, what they do. And so she began to just introduce herself. Hi, I'm Maria. I'm busy. Hi, I'm Maria. I'm busy. Because that's what everyone says, right? And it's kind of this mark of like, oh, our lives must matter if we're busy. But it's actually a mark of sickness. A cultural sickness. Sickness is in our own hearts, whether we're busy or not, to say, man, I have to have my identity by convincing you that I have important things to do. And so margin says, no, life is, is, is better in the margin. The best things in life happen in the margin we see in the series, and we'll see today. So if you have your Bible, Ephesians chapter 5 is where we'll kind of launch out from here. Ephesians chapter 5, and just by way of quick summary, the book of, Ephesus, the book of Ephesians is, is a lit letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he planted years before. Uh, that, that he loves. He's already preached and shared the gospel with them. And he says, um, hey, here's a reminder. Uh, people that he's told the gospel to, he's just reminding them. That's just a good thing for us. We need to be reminded uh, of the gospel. Uh, be reminded of what Christ has done for us. Be reminded of where our worth and value comes from. And he does that for several chapters. And then as he does in most of his letters, he then says, in light of this truth, in light of the gospel, how now shall we live? In fact, in chapter 4, verse 1, he puts it this way. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You think, well, that sounds odd. I, I thought that was the whole point of the gospel. Well, we don't have a life worthy of the calling. Uh, it's all grace. But, but he says, no, in light of the gospel that you've received, how now shall we live? And he begins to unpack that in the rest of the book. But in chapter 5, verse 1, we'll pick it up. It says, follow God's example. <laughs> and when I first, I underlined that, I'm like, okay, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> like, what does that even mean? Here's how you live a life where they just be like God. And you're like, okay, that's, I, I'm going to need a little bit more here. And then and thankfully he gives it to us. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. So think about that. We, we are to follow our heavenly father because he has loved us. And then he points us to uh, the way that we live a life worthy. We look at and follow and model our life after Jesus. He says, and walk in the way of love. Walk in the, I, I love that phrase. It, 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 it assumes a kind of, it assumes margin. You have time to walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So there's a couple things here that, that maybe give us some points of clarification of what margin is and is not. So margin is not a way of ordering your life to live more selfishly. To live a little bit more self-centered. Like, you know, I feel like my life is pretty crazy, pretty frenetic right now. And so I, I'm going to put some margin in. But what, what you actually mean is uh, I, I'm going to go binge Netflix for 12 hours. You're like, I can't serve my church. I can't serve my neighbors. I can't serve my family because I need some margin in my life. No, no. The, the whole point of creating margin in our life is to begin to walk in the way of love, to actually have slow meals with our family and our neighbors and to serve one another. This is what the point of margin is. So, 
So, so we are called to walk in the way of love. He goes on in verse 15 of chapter 5. He says, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Paul is acknowledging something, three things about time for you and for me. First of all, time is limited. Time is precious. We don't know how much each of us get, but each day we all get the same amount and we can't hold it, we can't save it, you can't, it is limited You might be able to get a new job and make more money, but you can never make more time. And we know that. We know that in our hearts, but in our lives, we don't live like this so often. Because again, it's a mark of of worth in our culture to be really busy. And so what do we do? Opportunity comes along, something new comes along. We say, oh, I can add that. I'll just add it. I'll add some more. I'll add some more. It's like this balloon. I can fit some more in here. And it goes bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're like, I can fit that. And this is just kind of how we live. But eventually that balloon is going to pop. And I said last service, uh, the, the person I know that is the, the highest capacity, smartest person, most capable person is my wife. And she's rolling her eyes now. But, but she gets a lot of opportunities like, like far more than I would ever get. She, she gets opportunities to write books, invitations to do this, go to uh, this conference, go speak. She's speaking next spring in, in Brazil to a, a giant women's conference. Like she gets a lot of invitations. And so um, she's like, her default is your default, my default. Like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll add that. I'll do that. I'll add that. And, and, and so she'll, she'll go to her core group each week and she'll be like, hey, this cool opportunity came about. I, I'm gonna, uh, I think I'm going to do this. And, and, and the core group members say something to her that she hates and she loves. And it usually goes something like this. Hey, Jen, that sounds awesome. Sounds like an amazing opportunity. I'm so glad you got that. So what are you going to stop doing? And she's like, well, well I, I, I didn't think about it like that. I hate that question. But at the same time, she loves it because it's a, it's a recognition of her finitude, her finiteness. Uh, she is limited. We can't just keep, keep, keep adding. So your time is limited. And the second thing about time we see in Ephesians 5 is it's all, of it, all of it's going to be spent. Like you can't save time for later. We, we say these crazy things. Well, I'm saving time for that. I, I'm going to, you know, that's important. So I'll, 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 I'll get to that later because I'm going to save time for that. You can't get to the end of your life and, and say, no, no, no. I, I've saved six months. I've got six months more because I saved all this time. It doesn't happen that way. Like trying to hold back a river with your hand. It just keeps flowing. Your time is going to be spent. And, and that leads to this idea that, that in our culture, in our time, someone or something is going to determine how you spend your time. And in our culture, it's going to try to push it uh, in, in all areas of margin to the absolute extreme, to the limits. And if we don't have a framework, if we don't have a, a kind of a focus on Jesus walking in the way of love, what will happen for all of us, and we've, we've all experienced this, is that the urgent will replace the important. Well, I just got to get to this. This is really urgent this week. I got to do and, and that happens. Like we, we have life, life happens. But when it just becomes the pattern of our life, the urgent replacing the important, we, we just live this kind of shallow, surface level, frenetic life. And, and, and we all know that even today, a phone call could come in and all of a sudden everything would be put in, in right perspective. 
Oh, I've been living for the urgent, but now the doctor called. This is going to happen. Uh, this person is sick. This person has just died. All of a sudden, the, imper- the important would come to the forefront again. Be like, man, I haven't been living like that. So, your time is limited. All of it's going to be, sent, going to be spent. Someone or something is going to determine how you spend it. So we, as God's people have a source for that. I want us to turn to uh, one more passage today, the one that we ended with last week. It's a, um, it's, it's a, a, a well-known, famous passage, and that's for good reason. But, but the problem in our world is when, when there are well-known, famous passages, especially from the Gospels, is that we know them, but we don't really know them. You know what I'm saying? We, we know them by, 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 by memory, but we don't know them by heart. We don't know them how to, what, what to live them, how to live this out. So I want us to sit at the feet of Jesus for a moment and listen to this amazing invitation. In fact, as, as I read the first verse and I read it last week, I, I hope that you feel just the, the relief of, of this. But it doesn't stop there. Look what he says in verse 28. Come to me, verse, uh, this is Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. And that, that sounds like a glass of cold water to a, a thirsty, parched soul. I, I love that. I, I've read that. I was up here last week and I'm reading. I'm like, yes, Lord, I, I need to come to you. But, but the problem is it's such a powerful invitation that, that we can forget that he's not done. He, he's not done talking about what that actually looks like. We, we read that and hear that as, oh, okay, man, I, I got to get to church because I've got these burdens. I got these wearies. We're going to sing these, this song and, and I'm just going to go dump this on Jesus. And I know I'm going to go live my life like everyone else lives their life and get new burdens and new worries. worries. But next week I'll come and dump them again. That's kind of how we respond and hear that, that verse. And, and that's okay. It's just not what Jesus meant. What you have to understand is that we see Jesus differently than they would have saw Jesus. Like, like we, we, we have the whole Bible. So we know Jesus is the co-creator of the cosmos, Colossians chapter 1. But we know that he uh, is the God incarnate. He took on flesh, took on our limits. We know that he lived a perfect life that you and I could never live. We know that he paid the price that you and I deserve to pay on the cross. He took our shame, our condemnation. We know all this. We know that he died. He was buried on, by the power of God on the third day. He rose again. He ascended to the Father where he rules and reigns. All of this is absolutely true of Jesus. But let us just pause for a moment. Imagine that you are a first century Jew. It's Sabbath. So you have stopped working. And you, with your family, have walked into synagogue. And you know someone's going to pull out a scroll from the Torah. And you're going to learn about the ways of God. And one day this 30-year-old comes in. And you recognize right away, oh, he's, he's a rabbi. He's a rabbi. And so as a rabbi, you would expect every rabbi to have two things. The first one, they, they would call it, it would be an idiom of the first century, a, a yoke. A, a yoke is a way uh, of teaching, of understanding the Torah, uh, of applying it to our lives, uh, of bearing under the weight and burden of this fallen world. How are we going to do marriage? How are we going to do divorce? How are we going to do sex? How are we going to do money? How are we going to do work? How are we going to do uh, our neighbors? All, all these things. How, how to live our life. And every rabbi had a yoke. Now what's so unique about Jesus is his particular yoke. 
Listen to what he says. He says, take my yoke. Yes, I'm a rabbi. I have a yoke. So take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's what every rabbi would say. Here's my yoke. Here's how you bear up under the burdens of life. Now, now most rabbis, their yoke would be like very heavy, very difficult. There's just something in the human heart that says, man, I want to prove to God and I want to prove to the world that I'm serious, that, that I am righteous, that I am holy. And so you would, if you were really committed, you would find a rabbi that would just lay that burden on you, right? There's just something in our heart that wants to earn our salvation. So, so Martin Luther, he, you know, he was, he, back in the 1500s, he was going to law school. He got caught in a lightning storm and almost died and decided to join a monastery. But what did he do? He looked around and he said, there's different schools of thought. There's different monasteries. I'm going to choose the Augustinian monastery because it was known as the hardest one, the most extreme, with, with the harshest kind of uh, self-flagellation, uh, harshest penalty. He, this was before he woke up to the gospel of grace and the easy yoke. It's just in our hearts, yes. So you look for a rabbi that would say, man, I, I think I can be uh, your disciple because that is, that's, that's really hard. But Jesus says something radically different. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, the, the people had never heard this. That they were being, they were taking on the yokes of the uh, the Pharisees and others, and and they were they were just weighed down by their attempt to prove to God that they were serious. And Jesus comes along and says, "Take my yoke; it's light and easy." So the first thing that every rabbi would have is a yoke. The second thing that every rabbi would have is a talmudim. It gets translated disciple, but a better translation would be an apprentice. Every rabbi had apprentices. And the apprentices would, would pursue three things. Spending time with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and learning how to live their lives as if Jesus had their life. So, so this is what it means to be an apprentice. You and I, in this, in this passage, are called to apprentice with Jesus, to spend time with him. There was another idiom of the first century that said this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Meaning, may you walk so closely with him that on the Palestinian roads, as, as the sandals kick up dust, you would just be covered with it because you're so close to him. And, and so we try to spend time with him. We become like him. And then we just ask this question. If Jesus had my life, Jesus had my marriage, if Jesus had my station, had my job, had, had all these things in my life, how would he live his life? And, and, and the closer you get to answering that, the more you become his apprentice, his apprentice. This is an incredible invitation. This isn't just an invitation to do uh, what Jesus commanded, but to do how he lived. Does that make a difference? So we think of the Christian life as, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to turn the other cheek and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take all of his teaching. I'm going to try to apply those, those specific things in specific ways and that's good. But then I'm just going to live my life like everyone else in the crazy, frenetic, culture. That's not what he's inviting us to in this passage. It's an incredible invitation. So as a way to see this differently, I'm going to put up a paraphrase of this passage uh, from Eugene Peterson in his, his book, The Message, that I think 
helps us see the invitation a little bit better. So let's, let's put this up here. It says, are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. I love this next line. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is an incredible invitation. It's an incredible invitation to be yoked with Christ. But again, it takes faith. Because what we really want, in our flesh at least, we want to go our way and we want Christ to be yoked to us. I'll lead the way, Jesus. I'm going to pursue this thing. I'm going to live like this, but can you just bless it along the way with me? Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how it works. You take my yoke, it's light and easy, but you'll do my way and my will and have my priorities and go at my speed of life. So, I promised last service, and I'll promise this again. I promised that at the beginning. I forgot to do that this time, but uh, I, I think I can free up two or three hours of your day. It's a big promise. Well, let me, let me show you how I did that. Because if you're anything like me, you, you can actually have this. And it's been life-giving, life-refreshing for me. But if we're going to uh, be yoked to Jesus, if we're going to be his Talmudim, if we're going to spend time with him, learn what he's like and have his life live through me, there's, and we're going to talk about margin in our time, there's kind of an elephant in the room that we have to deal with. Like, I, I do think we're busy people. But I don't think we're nearly as busy as we think we are. I think we're a distracted people. I think we're radically distracted. I I think we seek diversion and distraction. In fact, it's not even really our fault. There there are forces at work in our culture and in this world that, that have spent billions upon billions of dollars to get your distraction constantly. So, so we have a 24-hour news cycle. We can figure out what's going on in the other side of the world in a war. We can track with that. We have countless social media apps and, and notifications and pings that give you a little hit of dopamine to keep you coming back and, and to learn what you like and to show you reels and, and learn how to keep you constantly distracted. We have 24-hour, not just news cycle, we have a 24-hour sports news cycle. So at any moment, you can tune in to hear what a 24-5-year-old does with a ball in a game that was originally intended for children and say something like, I deserve more than $30 million a year. And we could get so wrapped up in that and be like, yeah, he does deserve more than $30 million a year. It's insanity. We, we can see uh, visions of the good life and we constantly, it, it's, it's, look, you're up against a lot. You and I are up against a lot. We are constantly distracted. There's some prophets against distraction. The first one comes from the 1600s. Blaise Pascal, he was a Christian philosopher. You might know him from the world of mathematician, as, a, as, as a mathematician. He, he was a philosopher, apologist. He says this about distraction. This first one will blow your mind. He says, I have often said, this is 1600s by the way, I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. We get fidgety. And I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get some. I gotta, and, and so in his days, it was like, go on hunts. Like, like that would be actually life-giving for me if I could go on a hunt. But for him, that was, that there was distractions. He, he goes on, he says this. He says, distraction is the only thing that consoles us for miseries 
And yet, it is itself the greatest of our miseries. Think about that. So, so there, are, there are things that we can do that give life and energy to our soul, but then there are distractions. These, for, for most of us, it's technological, digital distractions. We, can, we just need to get away from the, the pressures of life. We don't want to think about the thing. And so we go into this, this cycle, this rabbit hole uh, of just this downward spiral. And, and a, an hour, two, three, four hours go by, and you come out of that not more refreshed, but more burdened and more in misery as a result. There's another prophet in the 1980s, Neil Postman. 1980s, 85, no internet, none of that. But he could see already the trajectory of our culture. And he wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. He says this, when a population becomes distracted by trivia... When cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, like Facebook and Twitter there, when in short a people become an audience and their public business a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk. Culture death is a clear possibility. And I read that, I was like, Dang, 1985? He didn't even know that the internet would come. He's since passed. I don't know what he would say today. He might just say, I told you so. Culture death is here, clearly. Look around. Some quick stats. The average American adult spends three hours and 43 minutes staring at their phone every day. Year 2007 was kind of the the turning mark in, in uh, that, that historians will look back thousands of years from now if we're still around. 2007, the iPhone came out, Twitter came out, Facebook became public to not just college students, and the world has been changed as a result. Three, three hours and 43 minutes on your phone, three hours and 23 minutes watching television, that's over seven hours of just being in front of a screen. The stats are much worse for teenagers. We just give them to them and be like, just, just get distracted. Uh, the, by the age of 20, the average American male has spent t- 10,000 hours playing video games. If you know anything about the, the science of 10,000 hours, if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's books, for example, and others, 10,000 hours is kind of this magical mark where you can become a, a, a subject matter expert or um, master any craft. In 10,000 hours, you could... Get your bachelor's degree and your master's degree with some time left over. In 10,000 hours, you could read thousands of books and write a few yourself. In in 10,000 hours, you could become a master painter and have your works in galleries. In 10,000 hours, you could train and become an Olympic figure skater. Okay, not all of you. All of us. But, But you get the idea. Like some focused energy, focused attention. You can master the violin in 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours is significant. Or you could be level five of Call of Duty in 10,000 hours. In 10,000 hours, you, you, could, you could go online and endlessly argue the efficacy of masks during a global pandemic. And Paul says, live as wise, not as unwise, because the days are evil. Your time is limited. So if we're going to be apprentices uh, of Jesus, 
We've got to figure out how to free this up, to, to break free. So I started sabbatical, got, got, got that relief from just the dailiness of, of work and life and responsibilities, but I realized early on I still had this massive problem. That'll dry later, don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> this massive problem that I was, I was spending three, four, five hours a day on my phone. I get wrapped into the, the Twitter or social media or playing golf on my phone. Like, I was, I, I'm just being honest. I'm confessing. I was, I was looking at my screen time. I'm like, no, that's not good. Five hours a day last week? Oh, gosh. It's like, okay, I gotta, I've got to rearrange some things in my life, in my day. And so I, I, it, it took some time and it was hard. But I, I, was, I was able to say, hey, I'm going I'm to do less than an hour a day of screen time. I'm going to take off all notifications. I'm going to uh, use the focus modes. I'm not going to respond to text. I'm not even going to see text except for a couple times a day. I'm going to just arrange my phone and my life, and my digital life uh, to get some margin. And in the time that I would normally go there, I'd take off all the apps and social media. I said, I'm going to do things that bring life. I'm going to cook meals. I'm going to garden. I'm going to spend time with my family. Uh, Perhaps the the greatest beneficiary of me discovering that I have an extra two or three hours a day is my dog. Because I I get up and I go on walks with her all the time now. And I'm throwing the ball. Every time I stand up now in in my house, she is running circles around the house. She's like, it's time again. This is my best life. This is awesome. I love the extra two or three hours. But, But you know, going on a walk and coming back, I am refreshed and renewed and I can get back to work, you can have two or three hours. It's not easy. You got, you got to be disciplined about it. So every week now for the last several weeks, I've, uh, on Sunday morning, you can see a snapshot of your previous week. If you have an iPhone of what we spent. So I do a snapshot and I just send it to Pastor Rick. Here's my screen time. And it's just kind of, I know that's coming up next Sunday. So I'm like, ah, I don't even like to touch my phone anymore. <laughs> like I, I, I know it's coming. I'm going to send my screen time shot. So that's that's what it looks like for me. That's how you can get two or three hours if you're like me. So what does it mean to be apprentice of Jesus? Let's do some practical stuff this week. First one is, uh, I would say, you've got to pick a time and a place. And what I mean by this is, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus really shows what his yoke looks like, he says, when you pray, not if you pray, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. The implication is, you need to, you need to find some time to prioritize being with Jesus and learning from Jesus. And again, this is going to cost, oh, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. And again, I said it's going to take faith. It takes a margin. You've got to pick a time and a place. Even right now in your seat, you can say, okay, for this next week, for the, for the rest of the series, at this time, in the morning, if I'm a morning person or at night, if I'm a night person or in, at lunchtime, I'm going to go to this place. I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do five minutes. I'm going to try 10 minutes. Whatever it is, you've got to pick a time and a place. If we don't have that, we're lost already. The second thing to be an apprentice of Jesus is to consider a digital, digital minimalism. Or I put in another thing, Digital Detox. Uh, There's a book by the same title by Cal Newport called Digital Minimalism. It's not from a Christian perspective, but, but he does just some awesome work of how do we break free from the the distraction, the, the, the addiction to our phones. He does some great work there. So consider that. Cal Newport's book. Uh, number three, uh, create an ideal week plan. So if you've read business literature, uh, leadership stuff, this is, this is all the rage right now, but it actually comes from the church. It actually comes from Christians through the centuries who have applied Ephesians 5 to live wisely and not uh, foolishly. It's simply, you, you print out a, 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 on a one-page thing a, a week, Monday through Sunday, and you just begin to fill in the things. And, and in doing that, you fill in what's important. 
Now there's some urgent that is going to go in there, but you first just arrange your time and you put some margin in there and arrange your time. So I want to live my life on purpose, not as foolish, but as wise. And so you can just print that out. I would encourage you, if you want to be an apprentice to Jesus this week, to spend time with him, to get to know him, and live your life as if he was living his life through you. This would be the first step. And again, someone or something is going to determine how you spend your time. And the invitation to Jesus, to you and to me, is I've, given, I've made your time. I've given you your time. My burden is light. If you walk with me, you'll have margin and space in your life and your time. All of us have wasted time. None of us can go back one second to get that time back. But all of us can make a decision today to walk with Jesus and tomorrow to walk with Jesus. To that end, I want to pray for us as a church. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, I, I thank you that you are gracious and merciful. Lord, you know how I've wasted so many hours and days, weeks, months, years, Lord, But God, I pray that as an apprentice, you would show me and show our church what it means to walk close to you, to be covered in your dust, to become like you and to live our life as if you were living your life through us. Give us us the mind to do that. Lord, you've given us the spirit to do that. So let us walk in step with the spirit this week to the end that you are seen, savored, and glorified. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.